Uh, Lord, here we do pray now that as we turn to your word, you'd help us to understand more of what Jesus is telling us uh, in this section of Matthew's gospel as we consider what it looks like to see your kingdom come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in Matthew 5. And so why don't we read the passage together now? So I'm picking it up from uh, Matthew 5, starting at verse 21. Uh, Read with me if you've got a a Bible at home uh, or an app on your phone. I'd love for you to join in. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Or you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of these parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath, oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair, white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Oh, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, What reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, I wonder what growing up in your house was like. Did you have parents uh, who were really strict? Uh, Were there a million rules that you had to follow? Were you always kind of being hounded to do this or don't do that? You know, no TV after school, no gaming during the week, no sleepovers, 
or maybe it was more like, do your homework, do your chores. One of the rules I grew up with, with when friends were over was that they weren't allowed in my room. And so we had this rule at home, uh, door open, lights on. <laughs> now, perhaps you had an experience growing up that, that was a little bit more um, relaxed. Maybe there were no rules. You just went to bed and whenever you felt like it. Uh, no one checked your homework or made you do any chores. Uh, you could watch whatever TV shows you wanted whenever you liked. In fact, you could even have friends over in your room with the lights off. <laughs> You know, often our upbringings play a pivotal role in how we then go about parenting. Uh, we either emulate the type of uh, rules or no rules environment we grew up in, uh, or we parent in exactly the opposite way. And for many of us, Christianity looks like this, a bunch of rules set by someone else, often, often by the way we grow up. Spend any time reading the Old Testament, uh, most famously the Ten Commandments, right? It's a list of rules. But what if I told you then that Christianity is so much more than a bunch of rules? What if the way of Jesus was completely radical, a completely different way of living, that, that it even blew this, the greatest minds of the time? Well, that's where we are today in today's passage. Uh, a way of understanding the rules through Jesus' own interpretation it's kingdom principles for kingdom people from the king himself. The one who gives us the law in the first place gives us the true interpretation in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the four verses that preceded our passage today, Jesus has explained that he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. We see that in verse 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the, but to fulfill. And this reference to the law and the prophets is shorthand for referring to the Old Testament. And, and the Old Testament had two main functions. It had a prophetic function and it had a teaching function. All the Old Testament prophets were pointing to the promised Messiah, God dwelling with his people again, and that's been fulfilled in Jesus. And now if you missed last week's sermon, you should definitely go back and, and catch that up uh, to see exactly how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And previously, the Old Testament laws and commands, they functioned as a way of, for God's people to live in right relationship with God. But now, we no longer keep the law to be right with God, do we? Because Jesus has fulfilled the law and declared us righteous. Jesus is the one who lived the life that we couldn't live. He's the one who died the death that we deserve, but then rose again to give us new life with him. The law, this side of the cross, necessarily functions differently. It hasn't been done away with or superseded, you know, like the recent iPhone SE release. No, no, the law has been fulfilled, fulfilled in Jesus. It's a bit like an alley-oop in basketball. Uh, the, the law was the shot that set up the, the slam dunk, and then Jesus comes through and, and completes the move. And so we must bear in mind that fulfill does not mean the same as keep. Jesus is speaking of more than just obedience to regulations. And so this now leaves us with the hard work of understanding what exactly the heart of the law is that has been fulfilled in Christ. And so Christian ethics is understanding how to live for Jesus in this world at this time. And that means understanding the meaning of the law and the prophets which Jesus fulfilled. For the law now functions to show us God's heart for how we ought to live and how we ought to relate to him and others. It's God's wisdom for us. 
And so in verses 17 to 20 that we looked at last week, Jesus reorientates our thinking from holding to the letter of the law to valuing the spirit of the law. And so as those who belong to God, who are citizens of heaven, we need Jesus to help us understand how to interpret and apply the Old Testament correctly today. How to apply it this side of the cross of Christ. Because it's his fulfillment that shapes and changes ultimately how we view God's law. And this is super important if, we, if we're to make any sense of verse 20, which leaves us in a serious predicament. Let me read for you. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. How exactly are we to have a righteousness greater than the, the Bible bigwigs of the day? How do we get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, that's, what, that's exactly what Jesus is about to explain next. He's going to show us uh, six examples, six laws that would have been known to the disciples, but which the Pharisees have misunderstood. And he shows them three things. He shows them that there's a problem with the current interpretation of the law. He shows them that there is a, a principle behind the law, a kingdom principle. And then he shows them a, a posture that a true disciple is to have towards righteous living. The problem, the principle, and the posture the three things we're going to look at in each of these six examples. So let's get into it. Six scenarios which help us see what Jesus means by keeping the spirit of the law. Now, the first example that Jesus uh, draws is actually the sixth commandment. It's the old original law that was given to Moses, our ancestors at Mount Sinai, written in stone, and it's a clear prohibition, right? Read with me from verse 21. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. It kind of makes sense, right? Murder is wrong. Do it and you'll face judgment accordingly. But you see, the problem is that the Pharisees saw that simply as a tick box. It was easy to keep this particular law in the literal sense. And, and that's really the problem here. See, the Pharisees, they limited the extent of this law to external obedience. And so you could imagine them sitting back after a hard day's work and uh, asking one another, oh, how are you doing? How was your day? And they're like, yeah, yeah, pretty good, actually. You know, didn't murder anyone again today. So must be sitting pretty sweet with the big man upstairs. So if, if these righteous Pharisees never killed anyone, what is Jesus' interpretation of this law? What's the principle behind the command, do not murder? Well, Jesus goes on, doesn't he, in verse 22. He says, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. See, Jesus shows that rightly understood, the law goes much further than his hearers had realized. It's not simply enough to re refrain from putting someone to death. Jesus is getting at the heart of the problem. He, he points to anger as the cause behind all murder. And if the root of murder is anger, then anger is murderous in principle. He goes on saying, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. You see, anger always expresses itself negatively. Saying things without thinking, reacting in violence, insulting others in a derogatory way, like you fool... <laughs> And the principle Jesus is drawing out is that God cares about our relationships with others, about their good and flourishing, and to be full of anger, to get violent or even just to, to mouth off at someone and yet not kill them, misunderstands the very heart of this command. I wonder how you respond when someone wrongs you. 
Do you explode in a, in a fit of rage? Or perhaps you do the opposite. You just quietly harbor a grudge against someone, a bit of pent-up frustration. And, and here's something interesting. Notice that the onus isn't just on the victim's response. Jesus said, says that this command even extends to the person who caused the anger in the first place. Verse 23. You see, if we are truly concerned about our anger, then we should also be concerned when our actions lead to anger in others. The heart of this command results in reconciliation, where honest conversation can result in owning the wrongs that we've done. Because those who are friends with God are friends with others. Those truly reconciled to God reconcile to others. It's a posture of love towards other image bearers of God. And Jesus is laying down authoritatively how these commands of God should be understood. Uh, he's, he's just getting started, though. This is only the first of, of six, remember? And so let's keep tracking. Because if anger leads to murder, then next Jesus is going to show us how lust leads to adultery. Read with me verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. What's the problem here? Well, in the ancient world, it was generally held that even a married man could have sort of sexual adventures as long as they didn't involve a married woman. A woman, on the other hand, was expected to be chaste before marriage and faithful after it. So it was not seen as adultery if a married Israelite slept with, uh, say, a female slave or, or a Gentile woman. Adultery for him only involved sleeping with another Israelite's wife. But different, right? And so on the surface, the Pharisee could technically say, well, I haven't committed adultery. I've not slept with another man's wife. I've just slept with a slave girl or, or a Gentile woman. But Jesus takes the external action and drives straight to the internal principle. Verse 28, he says, But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says straight up that the lustful look is wrong in itself. To lust after a woman, regardless of whether she's another man's wife or not, is already to have broken this commandment. This is serious stuff. Jesus says that killing sexual sin uh, like this takes dramatic measures. Read with me from verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of, your, one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. While Jesus may be using hyperbolic language here, he, he's making an extremely serious point. This is no joking matter. Jesus is not saying that you literally need to cut your right eye out, but he is making the point that sin corrupts and we're not to compromise or become complacent. Why? Well, if you needed any motivation, the, the warning couldn't be clearer. For twice in this little section, Jesus mentions the fatal consequence of hell that awaits those who don't take sin seriously. And this is true for men and for women. Uh, this is not just a man's issue, but the lustful look also comes uh, to women as well. The heart of the matter always comes back to lust and, inte and intent. And so we have to ask, what's your, what's your posture towards sexual sin? Are you like the Pharisee, you know? You've never technically slept with anyone, but in your mind, you've been lusting after all sorts of different women, objectifying them and contributing to a pro prolific multi-million dollar porn industry. Or perhaps you're not yet married. And sure, you've not slept with your boyfriend or girlfriend, but, but let's be honest. 
You might as well have with the places that your hands have been. Friends, this is, if this is you, if you're stuck in a, in a cycle of lustful thoughts or, or, or sinful actions that you just can't seem to get out of, can I encourage you, please, would you, would you be open and honest about that with someone you trust? Would you be transparent with them and others for the sake of your own holiness? We need to be people who put sin to death. It's time to take critical measures necessary to control your sexual desires. Now, as we've been working through these sections, you'll notice that in every case, Jesus can contrast the people's misunderstanding of the law with the true direction in which the law points according to his own authority. Because remember, Jesus is the law fulfiller. So next up, Jesus tackles an assumed practice of divorce that's been reduced to simply a token gesture. The people of God were, were never commanded to get, di- get a divorce, but the Mosaic law did make provision for it. And so here in Matthew 5, verse 31, it says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. You see, throughout Judaism, a man was entitled to divorce his wife in accordance with Deuteronomy 24. And it was as simple as writing down in front of witnesses. Now, this was much harder and less common for a wife to divorce her husband. But the question was always on what grounds of indecency could this man divorce his wife? And you see, there had become a very wide range of interpretations of this rule. For example, apparently, a man was to divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner or even burnt his toast. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. What the so-called righteous in Jesus' day would do was was then get married, then for some small reason find a legal way to have many sexual partners. How? By divorce and then remarriage. By divorce and then remarriage. All this was getting out of hand, and and yet the scribes were only concerned about the paperwork, that that it was accurate. They're like bureaucrats. If you do this properly, you've kept the law. If you've signed this piece of paper, then you've done what you need to do. This is a major problem, especially in the context where it is extremely difficult for a woman to live unmarried. And it's against this, this ridiculousness that Jesus calls on people to appreciate his heart for marriage. Read with me from verse 32. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus basically says, your divorces are illegitimate and you're exploiting a loophole. Stop minimizing the law. Jesus here is not teaching a full theology of divorce. He's going to flesh that out a little later on in chapter 19 and and speak about when divorce is permitted. But here, his focus is to help his disciples understand the principle of the law. And that is that divorce destroys the original intent of marriage. It separates what God and his providence and for his purposes has joined together. It divides families, leaves women and children at risk, and can cut the core out of culture and and a country. And so, what should our posture towards this divorce be? Christians need to champion marriage, don't we? For the protection of women and well-being of society, we, we need to uphold that marriage is the lifelong union between one man and one woman, where, where men love, protect, serve, and, and sacrificially lead their wives. This is why, as a church, we actively want to invest in couples who are engaged to be married. 
We want marriages here at EV to, to last for the glory of God. Jesus isn't trying to show the failure of God's law, but the failure of God's people to follow his law because of sin. It's sin that corrupts, sin that distorts. And the force of Jesus' answers are the opposite to legalism. Here we have the lawgiver interpreting his law. Now, if you're here today, if you're tuning in, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you might be feeling a little bit confused. And and look, I want to say that's okay. (laughs) The thing to understand is that Jesus is the hinge point in history. What comes before Jesus versus what comes after Jesus is both separate and linked. So let me try and be a little clearer. Because the old covenant has passed away and Jesus ushers in a new covenant, those who follow Jesus are no longer under the old covenant. All the commands, the stipulations, the prescriptions that the old covenant established for the people of Israel, Jesus now fulfills. The new covenant that that Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 speak of is exactly that. It's, It's new. The law is written on our hearts, Jeremiah 31, 33. And God's spirit has been given to us in order to follow them, Ezekiel 36, 27. And so none of the Old Testament commands are no longer binding in any in and of themselves. We're under the new covenant entirely. But what Jesus is showing here is that some of the commands are to be kept. He's showing us that embedded within the old covenant, with its laws and commands, is a principle that still stands. So do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't divorce your wife. So we're now under what Paul calls the law of Christ in Galatians. Galatians has a lot to say about this new law. Uh, Fundamentally, though, the law of Christ is the law of love. Galatians 5.14 says this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Later in Matthew's gospel, we'll read that this is how Jesus himself summarizes what this law is about ethically, that it's about loving God and loving your neighbor. He said to them in Matthew 22:37, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, there we go, depend on these two commands. And this is what Jesus is trying to unpack for us: that the law of Christ is love. So, what does that look like? Well, If you love, you don't get angry and murder. (laughs) If you love, you don't lust after another woman and commit adultery. If you love, you don't divorce your wife and and kick her to the curb, so to speak. Well, we're three uh, examples down. We're we're three to go. And Jesus is going to continue to point us to the principles behind these various laws and exposing the Pharisees and driving us towards an ethic of love. So let's keep going. Well, if the Pharisees found uh, loopholes in the divorce laws, they also found escape clauses from binding oaths. Read with me from verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath, oaths to the Lord. And so how do the Pharisees take this? Well, they would avoid making oaths to the Lord. They would swear by Jerusalem or or by heaven and earth or even by the hairs on their head. (laughs) 
And still they would break that commitment without technically breaking the command. Verse 34, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Now, I've heard some Christians take Jesus' interpretation of that verse literally, whereby they they try not to make an oath or sign any membership forms or anything. But that would be to miss the point. You see, Jesus is saying that if, if you're a righteous person, if you're a kingdom citizen, then you should be reliable and true. Your word should be trustworthy. It should not be necessary for them to back up their statements with oaths, just to be a person of your word. Put simply, verse 37, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Jesus is saying here to his followers that they ought to be trustworthy all the time. And so don't be people pleasing in the moment only to ultimately look out for yourself. God's people are to be reliable and humble. The question is, is this true for you? Are you known as someone who is truthful and trustworthy? Trustworthy with your friends, telling the truth at home, at work. Are you known as having a consistent word with your character? Are you a person of your word who keeps their commitments? Now, perhaps you're even further back than that, and you've just got a fear of making commitments in the first place. You know, I think this is the millennial problem of our generation. This is the problem perpetuated by the maybe button on Facebook events, right? It's so easy to say you'll do something and then renege on it if something better comes up. To, to, to renege on what you've committed to do. Don't be like that, Jesus says. Or what other areas are you tempted not to tell the whole truth? Maybe it's out of a desire to be seen as better than you really are. Or maybe it's a, it's a modest pride that downplays your achievements. Remaining honest is challenging, as is refraining from retaliation, which is where Jesus goes next. You see, revenge comes easily to the human race, doesn't it? Anyone who grew up with siblings knows this next law well. You hit me, and I'll let you know that you hit me by hitting you back. And on the surface, that seems to be what this famous law in Exodus 21 is saying. Quoted here in Matthew verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But you know, this law was given not to justify retaliation, but to limit it. Retaliation for the sake of revenge is simply not required. And so imagine if you were playing rugby and someone knocked your tooth out, and then you went back to them and you said, oh, I need to knock your tooth out, (laughs) right? But here's the kicker. The context of Exodus 21 is not talking about personal revenge. It's, it's talking about a public legal justice. It's designed so that people don't go overboard in revenge. And yet the religious scholars, they had twisted God's word in order to justify personal retaliation that, lo- that the law was never meant for. They had misunderstood and, and misapplied. And, and so Jesus presses in on the personal side of justice. It gets very personal as he untwists the the principle of this law. Verse 39 says this, But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now Jesus tells his followers not to hit back, to to forego vengeance and, and justice in private situations. It doesn't matter if they deserved it or not. Jesus calls out our intent and insistence on enacting our rights. 
He says, be ready to endure a further blow. Because God's people are to give grace and not require revenge. And it's not just physical assault, but also personal property, even the clothes off your own back, right? Verse 40, as for the one who wants to sue you to take away your your shirt, let him have your your coat as well. Now, here, Jesus envisaged this as the situation where someone adopts some sort of legal measure uh, to take possession of a disciple's coat, his shirt. Must be a pretty good looking shirt if you ask me. Uh, this would be the modern-day equivalent of, of like a button-up shirt like I'm wearing today. And look what happens. Jesus says, well, you may as well give this guy your jacket as well. You know that really expensive jacket that you love to wear? And, and the thing that you need to understand is that a, a person has an inalienable right to his cloak in those days. His jacket couldn't be taken away from him permanently. And so what Jesus is asking here is radically significant. It's radically different. You see, what Jesus is saying is that we need to have a posture of kindness and generosity towards the evildoer, to go above and beyond to demonstrate his love towards them. The right thing is not only to put up cheerfully with the unreasonable and disliked demand, but to go well beyond what is asked. Paul says in Romans, Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. What would that look like for you this week? I wonder what situations might you need to turn the other cheek? We've seen the problem with oaths, and we've seen the problem with revenge. And now lastly, Jesus addresses the problem of enemies. This last example is a a classic distortion of God's command. And, And I want to show you in the original reference from Leviticus Read with me from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But but look at how this has been handed down to the first century Jews through scribal tradition. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See what they've added there? Nowhere in Scripture does it say to hate your enemies. The scribes were oversimplifying God's command with regard to how they were to treat their enemies. You see, it's easy to love those who love you, right? But Jesus says there's no reward for doing what's kind of commonplace. Even the tax collectors love each other. Even the Gentiles greet one another. That's just good manners. So what is the principle that Jesus wants us to see here? Well, verse 44. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus says that his followers are to love both your neighbor and your enemy. That's big. That's an all-encompassing love. You see, our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven ought to be so important to us that we pursue love avidly. To be God's children means to love, to love those both inside and outside our Christian community. And so as Jesus rounds out these six examples, he's landing the plane on the all-important ethic of love. As we saw earlier, we've been called to love our neighbor as ourselves. So how are we going at that? Even within our EV family here, if you're watching online, how are you going in your local context? How are you going at loving Christians during these testing times of COVID? 
How are you going at showing love to those outside the church? Where the world would repay evil, we're to pray for their good. So let me ask you, do you pray for those who talk down to you or make side remarks about your faith at work or uni? We need to see here that God provides for and deeply loves all people. It's his providence that goes out to all. And so we too are called to love more than just our friends. It's what Jesus refers to as perfect love. You see, Jesus says at the very end of our passage today in verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the perfection Jesus is talking about? Is it a moral perfection? perfection? After all, back in verse 20, we saw that kingdom citizens need a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. But we know that Jesus has achieved that for us. But here, the, the context pushes us to see how God doesn't discriminate his love on either the good people or the bad. It's, it's a perfect type of love. Verse 45 goes on, For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, God doesn't hide the sun from immoral people. He, he doesn't fail to water the fields of the wicked. <laughs> and in the same way, Jesus says that we're to love all people our brothers, those who love us, and even our enemies, those who don't love us. I think that's what perfect love looks like. Now, perhaps you've been a bit like me, wondering why Jesus chose these commands to think through. And we've gone through them pretty quickly. But I take it that these commands that Jesus illuminates for us are commands that are still required for us today. And that's because they're all relational commands. They involve other people. But here's the thing, they're not required because they're part of the Old Covenant. They're required because the New Testament, Jesus himself, indicates that they're part of the law of Christ. See, the New Testament isn't filled with detailed regulations. The New Testament focuses in on love of God and love of neighbor. We're we're fundamentally called upon to imitate Christ, to follow his footsteps And we we see what the love of God is like most clearly in the cross of Christ, don't we? His self-giving love for others, for you and I. And that's what Christians are called to, to to love with perfect, complete, whole love, just as our Heavenly Father has loved us in the cross of Christ. We're to emulate the love of God, the Father, who has loved us undeservingly in Christ. And as citizens of heaven, We are to act like God in his perfect love, loving even the unlovely. Love is not what gets you into heaven, but love is what you will will show if you're already a part of God's kingdom. Say that line again. Love is not what gets you into the kingdom, but love is what will show if you're already a part of it. It's a mark of maturity as God, by his Holy Spirit, is changing us from one degree of glory to another and, and is bringing to completion the work that he started in you. You know, as I grew up, the rules at home became less enforced. Uh, trust was built and the wisdom behind the rules that my parents laid down for me, I started to understand. In a desire to please my parents and respect the household I was a part of, I sought to conduct myself in a way that pleased them. And so too it should be for, our, for Christians in the household of God, right? 
those citizens who belong to the kingdom of heaven. God is looking for internal righteousness, not just external righteous actions. He's looking for us to delight in the kingdom principles of the law, not to minimize them. He's looking for us to experience the joy of living as kingdom citizens. And it's only because we have God's spirit at work in us that we can actually do just that. We can maximize God's teaching and internalize it, not falling into legalism. And so if you're here today and you're, you have not yet trusted in Jesus, uh, please don't hear this as saying being a Christian means following a bunch of rules. No, no, it means trusting the one who perfectly fulfilled the rule book for you, not only in outward observations, but inward heart as well. He died in our place so that we could be part of his family. And being a Christian means trusting the Christ, the one who did it for us, living like you trust him. And so not in order to be saved, but because he has already done it for us at the cross. The thing we all need to hear is following Jesus concerns our motives and attitudes more than our literal conformity to the rules. And it's in this sense that it is radically different. This is the joyful delight to live this way. And so may we be marked as a people who live out perfect love as we glorify our heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the love that you've shown us, the perfect love that you've displayed for us in the cross of Christ. And we ask that you would help us this day to see the way in which this law is fulfilled in Christ and then interpreted for us. We ask that you would help us to live out the wisdom principles that it sets before us in a way that brings you glory and speaks volumes to those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.